Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 549 with Rick Gillis. Rick is going to share how, if you know about and improve this ratio, he calls the quotient that can go a long, long way in boosting your probability of getting raises and promotions. You'll learn, one, the factor that determines your compensation at work. Two, how to speak up for your work to your boss. And three, the perfect time to bring up your accomplishments. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com com slash F549. Now here's Rick's story. Rick Gillis is a speaker, author, and personal career advisor. He has spent over two decades writing books and sharing techniques to manage and maximize careers across the country. He's the founder of the Richard Gillis Company, LLC, which provides training and career coaching to help job seekers land the best possible position at the highest possible pay. Rick has appeared on several media outlets such as Forbes.com, NPR, and The Wall Street Journal. Rick and his wife, Mary, live in Texas, where he spends his free time riding along the Texas Gulf Coast on his Harley or in his music room and art studio. Big thanks to Rick for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provider compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Rick. Rick, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. You bet, Pete. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom. And, but first, I think we need to hear a little about you and Harley-Davidson motorcycles. What's the story here? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It's funny. I had a friend of mine one time say, Gillis, I didn't know you were a biker. And I said, I'm not a biker. I just ride a bike. And I do. I have a Harley that I've been, it's a 2006 model. I've been riding it for years. And I live south of Houston. So it's literally 54 miles straight shot to the Gulf Coast. So that's kind of my riding. I, I don't do traffic riding. Saturday, Sundays, get out on the highway. That's what I do. Oh, that, that sounds fun. And, and so you don't have any uh, family that uh, <laughs> tries to curtail those adventures. I don't think my wife would go for that if I told her, hey, I'm moving to Harley now. You know what? Now that I'm old enough, I got back into it. I gave up riding motorcycles when I don't even remember now, 17, 18, after dropping two or three of them. Oh, man. And I've only had this bike for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. So, no. And like I said, I ride by myself. I go down two-lane highways, very little traffic. Yeah, I'm not tough. No. Well, you'll get no judgment from me. Uh, <laughs> my wife is a safety enthusiast. And motorcycles are uh, probably not in my cards. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I really do. They're dangerous. There's no question because I have to drive for everybody when I'm on the road. Yeah. 
All right. Well, so good to know. You get a little background there. Uh, you've invented an interesting concept called the quotient. Yeah. And uh, well, can you, first of all, define that and, and tell us why professionals might care about it? Well, I'll tell you what. Now, we're not sharing this with anybody, right? This is just between you and me. <laughs> I, I would make no uh, representations of that. Let me tell you what, Pete. The quotient was an epiphany I had literally just over two years ago, and I knew it was developing, and it came out of working with job search, job seekers for so long. I did it for 20 some odd years. And uh, I was literally riding my bicycle, not my bike, in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden it struck me what this was. And let me tell you, like I said, just between you and me, this quotient thing is a really very rich, new, powerful concept. And I maintain it's going to resolve the pay disparity issue. And what it is, it's kind of like taking from a salesperson's point of view, which I am and have been for many years, a salesperson knows that if we don't sell something this month, we don't have a job next month. And that's just the way, that's your mindset. I would like the person who gets a paycheck to start thinking like that because a person who gets a paycheck on Friday takes off the weekend, comes back on Monday, gets back into the mental mindset of being at work, of producing value. The quotient is exactly this. I take your work contribution, which I spend a lot of time in the book telling the non-salesperson how to determine their the value of their contribution to their employer. In dollars. In dollars. That's a unit we're working with. Yes. Or euro, as the case may be to our European friends listening. Okay. Right, exactly. Sure. <laughs> it could be any. But you take the value of your contribution to your employer and you divide that by your base pay. Now, note it's not your net, it's your base pay. And so what happens, that creates the quotient. So let's say, for example, you work for me and whether you have read the book and have figured out how to do this or if I am doing it for you or mutually, we determine that you have raised you generated $250,000 in value this year for my company, okay. and I pay you $50,000 a year. So $250,000 divided by $50,000, your quotient equals five, which means that you're a good employee. You generated five times more than I paid you, so there's value there. But now let's go a little further because let's say I'm a male working with an equally skilled female. My quotient this year was a nine. Hers is like, say, a 23 but I get the promotion, the raise, and the bonus. Is that a legal standard? It's been suggested to me by some very knowledgeable people that it could be a legal standard. And when you consider the possibilities, and, and I got to tell you, Pete, this is an epiphany I had. The fourth draft of the book, I'm about three months away from finishing the book, and I had been writing with the mindset all along of equal pay for equal work. I even had to look up where that came from, and that's 1963, President John F. Kennedy signed the Equal Pay Act, which I really, so I didn't know where it had come from. And all of a sudden, it struck me, that's not what this is about. This is not about equal pay for equal work, because that's really hard to define. How many people do exactly the same thing? But if we instead say that this is the proper pay for the best performance, that takes discrimination out of the discussion. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter, male, female, black, white, Hispanic, old, young, any reason for discrimination goes out the window when you pay the best person who performs the best. That's really, that's what the quotient is. Well, I mean, that's that sounds like a beautiful vision and world there. I appreciate that. In which compensation is is indeed proportionate to your, your contribution. That sounds you know, fair and, and equitable and just. And for those who 
are awesome at their jobs and aspire to be more awesome at their jobs. It sounds uh, tasty and lucrative. So so we like that. Thank you. Um, well, you know, I appreciate that. And I say that because this is the motivated individual that's going to use this. The person that's really okay with things or has no motivation. See, I've actually got three levels of quotient. One is the quotient of one. And that is when, let's say I'm paying you $35,000 a year to be a delivery driver for me, and you do a very good job. I'm perfectly happy. But a business cannot operate on quotients of one, we need quotients of plus five, plus 35, plus 3,000. It depends. So there's a lot of different thought that goes into this. And there's also the quotient of less than one, which can be bad, but it depends also on the person. Yeah. So, well, there's, there's a lot here. And, and, and I think just, just conceptually thinking about things in this way is helpful already in terms of thinking, okay. And, and I think in sales or, or fundraising, if you're a director of development for a nonprofit, then it, it's pretty clear. It's like, okay, I see, I know what they pay me. And I know what the, I brought in mm -hmm. and I can see Agreed. that I am uh, very profitable or I am very not profitable uh, for my organization. <laughs> and that could indicate I, I'm likely to be um, promoted or get a raise or to be exited in the near future. So now the game gets a lot more intricate when your value or contribution is not so readily quantified in terms of dollar sales brought in. So so can you help us maybe give us some examples of, of sure. how do I think through that in terms of I am a program manager or I am mm -hmm. an engineer? Mm -hmm. How do I kind of get after what my contribution is and in, in currency? Well, fundamentally, first of all, there's two ways that you bring value to an organization. You either make money or you save the organization money. That's it right there. So most people in a company do not deliver revenue. They actually save money. So it's a matter of being efficient. The uh, fact is efficiencies, saving of money, doing your job better than somebody else. And I have throughout the book, I have 14 Q studies. And of course, that came from the quotient. So I call them Q studies. And they are real people I've worked with over the many years, helping them get ahead. Because I found a lot of people could tell me what they had done. They could not tell me what that translated into in value. And candidly, this was a lot of 50 plus year old men who had crazy good jobs who I think got lazy, complacent, and all of a sudden they weren't realizing they were not generating the appropriate value for their pay rate, and they got pink slips. And so when I'd talk to them, almost across the board, I would find that they could tell me what they did. They could not tell me what that value was. And I actually have a chapter in the book called The Earning Curve, where your earnings continue to go higher, your personal earnings tend to go up and up and up, but the value you're bringing to the company starts crossing down. And when those two axes cross each other, you're at a problem now because you're no longer developing what generating the value you should be generating. So in my, in my case studies, I have several examples of people from an executive assistant to a bank VP. I even have my own personal story in the book, which I didn't even realize. By the way, I don't have anybody's real name in there. So if anybody hears this and goes to the book, when you read Brad's story, that's actually Rick, me. So I changed everybody's name in the book. But I did a deal when I was in the real estate business. And this was about 10 years after the fact that I remembered this. I 
had created a commercial lease document that saved my company some 26 odd million dollars. Well, there you go. Yeah. And that was a big deal. Now, I was in the business of managing property, selling space, preparing that space, build out, maintaining the grounds. So I was a general manager. I had 14 buildings on 20 acres that I was responsible for. And I'll tell you the story and I'll keep it as brief as I can. One morning I got served by a Texas sheriff and I got sued by a a realtor that said I owed him $8,000 on a deal that I said, no, I did the renewal. You're not entitled. So I went looking into the, the original lease file that my predecessor had done. And I saw that by damn, they had agreed in handwriting that I had missed it. It was my mistake that he would be paid on all lease renewals. So I called my boss and I said, send me a check for $8,000. And uh, we had 26 office parks across the nation. So it was a big company. He sends me a check for $8,000. I paid it. I paid the realtor. I went back to the office and I told my secretary, Gay, I said, you and I are going to go through every lease and we're going to put a cover sheet and we're going to note any anomalies that happen in these leases. So this will never happen again. A few months later, my boss comes to town and he's looking through some of the leases and he goes, what's this cover sheet? Well, long story short, I had solved a problem that I didn't even realize was national. He took it back to corporate and we had 26 office parks. So about three months later, I had 25 general managers really upset with me because they had to do what I had done. But I saved the company an enormous amount of money in legal. Now, I maintain, Pete, and I know this might be a little la-la, but I maintain that people regularly do good things above and beyond their regular daily job that they do not are not aware of. They don't watch out for this. I missed my own, and I was a sales guy. So, you know, 10 years later, I was working with a client on the phone when all of a sudden I remembered this. I went to my whiteboard, wrote it down, and now it's a story in the book. Certainly. So that is a fine example. So that was outside your daily kind of your day job in terms of like your your day-to-day normal recurring responsibilities mm-hmm. that you, you you found something you got proactive to make sure it didn't happen again and then when when you share that and it gets extrapolated over you know, a broader base of properties, it, it really adds up in terms of we would pay lawyers or, or, or whomever this much money to to make that happen. So so that, that's interesting. So there's a there's a specific source of savings there, like legal fees not spent, which uh, you can determine based on, I guess, if you know, just how many hours legal work versus uh, their hourly rate. Well, I'll tell you what, that's an excellent point, because the fact is the company has been out of business. It, it was acquired many, many years ago, so I didn't have a source to go back and get hard numbers. So one of the things that I developed along this line is what I call the defensible statement. And that is, if you walk in and tell me, I'm, let's say I'm hiring a sales guy, and you tell me you sold a billion dollars or something last year, you better be able to prove it. You better have it in writing. But if you came to me, and I'm used to doing million-dollar deals, half-million-dollar deals, and you tell me that last year you did a million dollars, I'm going to, I'll take that. I'll accept it. We'll question it. We'll talk about it. Give me some head up. So the defensible statement is a really important component to this. I did not have any hard numbers. It was well over 10 years after the fact. I went and took, which if I was interviewing with a real, a commercial real estate firm, and I told them that I saved one percent of my gross revenue annually by not having to spend these thousands of dollars in covering mistakes. And I had a little bit more information for this. I had the smallest office park in El Paso of the entire nation. I had 400,000 net rentable square feet. Some of the bigger guys in Miami, Virginia, uh, Richmond, Virginia, and Atlanta, they had like 2 million square feet. So using my numbers 
and taking 1% of my gross revenue and multiplying that out, that comes to like $26,000 based on what I was supposed to be generating gross revenue at that time. And then I multiplied that out times 26 office parks, keeping in mind that I used my office park, which was the smallest venue, and took that across the yeah. my point is it's very defensible. So you gotta be careful. You gotta keep that in mind. You're super conservative there. It's like at least this amount, but probably much more. Uh, there's I'm comfortable saying more, yes. If I may, how, how do we arrive at the one percent? I figured one percent at the time I was quoting twelve dollars a square foot for space. I had four hundred thousand net rentable. So twelve dollars times it was four million eight hundred thousand dollars times one percent. I came down to where it was about twenty six thousand dollars, I think I saved annually or something. And then I multiplied that out times the 26 office parks because it was of benefit to the entire organization. So yeah, that's exactly how I extracted that number. But let me give you another for instance, because this is not all about just big money players. One of the stories in the quotient is a woman, a friend of mine, who is a, an executive assistant. And she, at the time, matter of fact, I know right now she's making about $84,000, $86,000 a year. And we were talking recently and I, I told her, I said, certainly there's somewhere you have saved some money for the organization. I mean, she's the executive assistant to the CEO. So right there, she's worth more than just another administrative assistant. But she told me that one day she had been assigned to review some contracts and she found $77,000 of unclaimed discounts that the person who was doing the job was supposed to have been doing had not claimed it. This was one eight-hour day. She achieved a $77,000 gain. And I told her, I said, I know you're not being paid $77,000 a month because, like I said, she's making $86,000 a year. So in that one instant, she had a value a savings that she could share that was above and beyond and people do this stuff all the time i really believe that mm -hmm. Pete. i really do uh, certainly yeah okay so you get after your value by any number of things think about the the, the money they brought in or the money that you saved and then you know you might need a little bit of help with uh, excel or google sheets to to say hey what's the value and, and what's the parameter and then why did i make why did i say that's the number and here's why it's conservative you know so it might just be three to 10 lines of, of Excel, but that's fine, you know, to, to sort of make that defensible statement. So, so okay, so we're, we're getting at the contribution side of things and, the, and your payment, you know, and so then these these numbers, the, you know, sometimes you said five, 35, 3,000. I mean, what's a good quotient? And uh, what, what, <laughs> good what level of quotient makes you say, hey, I can probably get a raise now? I'll tell you, that's exactly based on, entirely based on what you do. Like I said, a quotient of equal one, a Q1, is the person who's doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, but a company can't work on that. Now, if somebody is hiring a coder who needs to, and they're going to try to take on, let's just say Facebook, uh, their quotient might be a thousand to one. They, let's pay this person $350,000 bonus, et cetera, et cetera, options. That person needs to deliver at minimum three and a half million dollars annually to be a quotient of one if you want to baseline all the positions in your company, which you can do if you want to get everybody down to a queue of one. But in other words, that is what that person would be required 
to deliver before they'd even see a bonus or something like that. So there's lots of different ways to figure this. And I and let me tell you another thing too, Pete, that's really pretty fascinating. I'm not an MBA. I'm not a PhD. This comes from just 22 years of working with people and seeing these different kinds of values developing. I really had to stop and think about this from the employee's point of view, from a manager's point of view, from a regional's point of view. See, because you can use the quotient across branch, division, department, you can use it in all, it works all across these different levels, which I'm not saying the controllers don't already know this stuff. I do understand that. But I think there's a need here for two things to happen. Number one, the worker to embrace this and recognize what they're doing. And also for the employer to understand that if they get somebody who is more engaged and owns this, they're going to be a better, more motivated, more engaged worker. And it, this thing is a two-edged, double-edged sword. It also cuts the other way. And you get to find out the people who really aren't carrying their weight because too often, especially in the big companies, they're working with a pool of people and it's kind of like, let's don't rock the boat. Let's don't shake things up. But now what is important to this discussion is that the individual is responsible for pointing out their wins. You know, a company is not responsible. Your company is not required to point out when you have a really big win. For instance, when I discovered and saved the, my real estate company all that money, it was not their responsibility. Their responsibility was to me was to pay me fairly, pay me what we agreed on, pay my et cetera, et cetera, my health care, whatever. But that's it. If I do anything extraordinary, good for the company. That's to their benefit. But I, you know, when I think back on this and I save the company, you know, millions of dollars, it would have been neat. I would have been smarter of me had I been able to go to annual review, annual end of year and say, look, I did this. I'm worth a bonus. I'm worth a promotion. I'm worth something, a raise. And that's where I think the motivated individual who goes to their supervisor and or supervisors, I always strongly recommend you don't just share this information with your boss, but your boss's boss and her boss as well, because everybody should know you are an up and comer, you're motivated, you're engaged. Certainly. So you get some great achievements and, and hopefully they uh, amount to you a whole bunch of value and, and contribution. And so then uh, the part of the game is, is quantifying that, capturing that that, communicating that, and, and then, yeah, what are some of the best practices for, for sharing your accomplishments in a way that is not obnoxious and can get you some benefits? <laughs> Good question. Let me tell you what, let's face it, there's a lot of people who are not comfortable with this. We're taught not to brag, and I appreciate that. There's no question that's really, really important. But bragging and boasting is not the same as informing and sharing those with you. Let's say, for instance, you hop in the elevator and it's you and the CEO, and that does happen to some people. What are you going to say? You have an opportunity to express your value to somebody who can make a really make an impact on your life, and you say, hey, uh, grand weather we're having today, isn't it? Well, you've just lost an opportunity. So one of the things that I'm about, and I do promote this in the book, you have to be continuously working these. You have to be continuously thinking these things. And you should always have one ready. I'm not joking. Rehearsal ready that you can say, hey, uh, you know, Mr. CEO, it's really nice to see you. How are you today? Great. What's going on? Well, you know, I'd like you to know about this commercial lease document I just created that saved the company, I think on the order of several million dollars. You know, when you tell somebody that, first of all, they have been in your place. They do appreciate it. I maintain strongly that supervision 
your immediate boss, maybe not so much, but above and beyond that, really likes to hear wins. And that's a fair thing that you can have something available that you could share with, you know, the CEO or somebody else. You know, like once again, I'm going to go back to this same place where if this is for the motivated individual who's going to study this, watch it. Because one of the things that is going on and as a salesperson, a sales professional is always doing this. You're always thinking about if I close this deal, if I close that deal, if I close this other deal, these create different revenue streams and et cetera, et cetera. But the person who is working the regular job, who is only focused on that one thing, does other things. And they really need to be thinking about the possibility that there could be quotients for their regular work. And there could be more than one or two or three of those. Plus, there can be those quotients for any value they create above and beyond what is requested of them to do. Yes. And well, maybe can you share with us a, a, one of the, your, your Q studies, sort of a fun story of a professional who used this concept, ran with it and, and found themselves uh, with a whole lot more money as a result? So the Q study has come out of real people I have worked with in the past who landed very good jobs as a result of my helping them in their job search. But I went back to them after the fact. In other words, I went through my files and I found uh, here's Jeff and here's Hannah and here's whoever. And I called him up and I said, Hey, I'd like to use your story in this new book. Can you tell me what you were making at that time when you achieved this? See, where this came from, Pete, is one of the secret sauce in my working with job seekers is I required, it was not negotiable, I required them to put together an accomplishments inventory. This was a requirement of providing me eight to 10 very best accomplishments. I didn't need to know the who, what, where, when, why, and how behind each one. And so these people would prepare me 8, 10, 12, 15 pages of these things. And I remember one chemical engineer, this woman I worked with, she handed me 18 pages handwritten of accomplishments. And she handed me this whole pile. And I glanced at the first one. I handed it to her. And I glanced at the next one. I handed it to her. And she got upset with me. She said, you mean you're not going to read those? And I said, no, that wasn't for me. I don't even speak chemical engineering. That was for you to prepare you for the interview. And now we have the information, the ammunition to create your resume. Now we're ready to set you out and get you working. And so I did this with everybody and anybody who would not accept that they had to put together an accomplishments inventory for me, I didn't accept them as a client. So that has always been my secret sauce. And when these people get to interview, they're absolutely ready. So I went back and I took some of those accomplishment statements from different people and I called them up and I said, what were you making at that time? And I was able to, and, and once again, this is really important to the Q studies, I had to use workarounds. For instance, I had to use the dollar amount for this one guy who's a construction supervisor where he was able to build a bridge over it was a gigantic piece of cement they had laid for for some con for construction and he found that he was losing literally at the rate of 5 to 7 minutes a day some 1200 workers having to walk all around this this big monolith they had built. So he took it upon himself to build a bridge. He just had a bunch of aluminum and steel, and he fabricated a bridge that took these people straight across instead of going around, save five, six, seven minutes. But these people were making on the order of 40 plus dollars an hour. And when you multiply that $40 times, you know, take out, get the minute rate, multiply that times how many dollars were out there, how many people were working. And all of a sudden, this guy was starting to save some real money. And at the time, he was making, I don't remember exactly right now, but he was making on the order of $48 to $50 an hour. So I can take his hourly rate and see that he saved all these minutes 
When we divide that by 60 minutes, we get lots of hours, and then we're able to divide that by that total by what he was making, and we do come up with good, reasonable, defensible quotient for my client. Right. And so then he got a promotion or a raise as a result of this? Actually, he left and he's now reporting to the CEO with one of the biggest electric generating companies in the United States. And yeah, he's, (laughs) and I'll tell you what, I'm going to scratch my, I'm going to slap myself on the back for this one because he actually took my accomplishments concept and he's now the director of best practices for this very, very large utility in the United States. And so he took what I showed him, what I taught him, and took it and made it even better for himself. So, yeah, I'm really proud of him. Very cool. Okay, so then a a real part of that is making sure that when you do that great stuff, you take a moment to capture it and and quantify it. And then when it comes to conveying it, do you have any pro tips, some do's and don'ts for asking for, you know, some of that value you created to, to come back to you? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, I think this really comes down to the annual performance review. I think one of the things that I want performance reviews to become, and by the way, I do have a model for a quotient-based performance review in the book. Yeah, so once you identified this this value, uh, how do you yes. go and ask for it? The fact is, I think that annual reviews should be more objective than subjective. Then what that does, that puts the onus on the worker, the person who's reporting, to walk in with this information and be able to share it and show it. And so once again, I go back to the place where this has to be the motivated worker. And by the way, this keeping, having a source of keeping your accomplishments you know, in front of you, it's called your calendar. I can go back and look in my daily calendar and go back several months and I can see where I started working with X client who is now a senior vice president at such and such. And those are value to me because I don't have a hard dollar value because I don't claim their salary. They paid me, but I am very proud of the fact that that person back in the workforce is now buying a home and buying cars and sending their kids to school and spending that income to the good of the economy. The annual performance review is when you need to go in and it needs to be a two-way conversation as opposed to the set your goals at the beginning of the year, review your goals in the middle of the year, and at the end of the year, take what your boss is going to tell you. One of the things that I say is do not assume that your immediate supervisor knows exactly what you do. I consider that tragic career mistake number one. And that's also why I say don't ever be afraid or ashamed of sharing your wins with your immediate supervisor and her boss and his boss and her boss because up and down the line protects you in the sense that number one your boss may be very very subjective and really run you into the ground and maybe you're that quiet person that's not good at defending themselves and or the other side of that is when you're his or her supervisors know about you and they turn in a subpar appraisal, maybe they're going to modify some things. So yes, there's a little bit of politics in here, but mostly I think it's about being appropriate. And that's a very big term for me is being appropriate. No bragging, no boasting. And for the person who does not know how to do this, you can practice with your friends, practice with your coworkers. But, and let me say something about coworkers while I'm there. This is not about team. 
This is about I, me, and mine. This is always about yourself. Because if you were part of a team, just like you would in a resume, bring out what your contribution was to the group. Don't focus on what the big win was for the team. Well, and I like the example you made with the, the CEO in the elevator is it's less like, oh, aren't I amazing because of all these things. <laughs> it's just sort of like when that question naturally comes up, hey, what have you been up to? What have you been working on? What's new? You, you can tell them and you, you maybe have some enthusiasm and not so much that you're awesome, but, but rather that uh, this was kind of exciting that you that you captured an opportunity. It's like, oh, well, one interesting thing was in, in reviewing our leases, we discovered this, which could result in uh, just about $26 million. And then they go, oh, cool. <laughs> Duly noted. Pete, what I call this is the what and wow. I have a formula that is when you give me a list of your accomplishments and I take one of them, I reduce each accomplishment down to responsible for blank that resulted in blank. And I call that the what and the wow, responsible for what that resulted in wow. So for instance, for me to tell you to go back to my real estate win is to say I was responsible for creating a commercial lease document that resulted in savings to the company of about $26 million. The person hearing this, in their head, they're going, whoa, wow. So what they really are thinking, though, is if you did that for them, can you do that for me? And that's when you need to be able to discuss the who, what, where, when, how, and why, because they're going to ask you, how did you do that? And when somebody says, how did you do that? They really don't care about so much how you did it, but can you do it for me? And that also applies within companies, within branches, within departments, within companies. Hey, people are rating employees all the time within companies. So they're responsible for what that resulted in wow. That is a formula. And that's very apparent in the, uh, in the quotient. Okay. Well, well, tell me, Rick, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I'll tell you what. That's funny you say that because, hold on, I even did homework for you, buddy. Oh, thank you. So tell us uh, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring. Well, I'll tell you what. My favorite quote comes from the Imagination Game movie. And I don't know if you know the movie. is about Alan Turing, uh, World War II. Oh, yes, I did see that. Sometimes it is a people no one can imagine who do the things no one can imagine. I use that in my presentations because I want everybody to know that they do have value and they are special. Now, one thing about that quote, I was so taken with it that I actually Googled it and I found that this guy who wrote the book about Alan Turing, I reached out to him in England and he was a, he was just cranky as hell. He said, I didn't write that. Some script writer wrote it. And I went, okay, then I won't give you credit. But so that's why I tell people it's from the imagination game movie. It is not Alan Turing did not say that. That's funny. Yeah, but it's a great quote. Oh, okay. Uh, and a favorite book? I'll tell you one of my favorites by Lou Adler. He wrote a book called The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. And it's a really smart book for job seekers. And the reason is he wrote it for staffing companies, recruiters, how to hire. And then after each chapter, he tells the job seeker how to use that same information to their benefit. And, uh, and Lou Adler, he's a great guy. Very smart. All right. And a favorite habit? My favorite habit would be on LinkedIn, and this is LinkedIn specific, I try to respond to every request to connect with a personal note. 
It doesn't always generate uh, conversation, but quite often it does. So that's my personal practice because uh, I'm very aggressive. And is there a favorite nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and is quoted back to you often? Yeah, well, you know what? It kind of became the subtitle to the book, and that's the proper pay for the best performance. You know, equal pay for equal work. I just don't agree with that anymore now that I've really thought it through. So the proper pay for the best performance. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? rickgillis.com. And if they want, either connect with me or follow me on LinkedIn. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. Your work does not speak for itself. You do. All right. Rick, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you lots of luck with your, your motorcycle adventures and, <laughs> and working with folks and making the biggest impact you're making. Pete, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate your questions and I can tell you could go a lot deeper on this than I can. You're the bomb, dude. Well, I really appreciated Rick's quantified approach. Super handy there and a great little gem of a quote. Your work does not speak for itself. You do. I am also not so inclined to do a whole lot of that self-promotional stuff. Uh, I'd like to how Rick really spelled out there that there's a time and a place, thinking about the performance review situation and the time encounters in which you have with folks to share those bits appropriately, tactfully, so that they know because it's a big, complex organization a lot of the times, and folks, they're just not going to get the memo if, if you don't speak up a bit there. So great stuff from Rick. Again, the show notes, the transcript, links to items we've referenced are at com slash ep54. If you haven't already, I hope you'll catch our next guest. It's Jen Goldman-Wetzler. And Jen has got some perspectives on conflict that may blow your mind and reshape the entire way you think about that. Hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.